Hey, everybody, welcome to the Bridgetown Podcast and the Van City Podcast. Sitting here again in the basement of First Baptist Church, you are not hearing a Sunday teaching. You are hearing an interview. This time around, we have on the other end of the line, all the way from Canada, Toronto, Canada, the other side of North America, we have the one and only Bruxy. You apparently have a last name, but we all just call you Bruxy. Such a strong first name. <laughs> it's, is there, Bruxy, it's great to have you on. First off, welcome. <laughs> It's a privilege to be here. Yeah, my last name's Casey, but you're right. When you have a weird name like Bruxy, you can just go with that. <laughs> is is Bruxy actually your name, or is it a nickname? You know what? No, it's, it's a nickname. It's a childhood nickname that stuck, and so I've just grown up with it. Eventually changed it legally because um, it just, I grew up, this is me. This is what, my parents named me Bruce, to be fully full disclosure, and Bruce. Bruxy is a mispronunciation of Bruce that stuck. I'm not going to lie, Bruxy is cooler than Bruce. Yeah, I like it. I, I just want to know, so. why do you still have a last name? Like, what? <laughs> why not just go, like, superhero style? Why not just go by Bruxy? Yeah, the Bruxinator. Yeah, exactly. Think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are hearing this and you don't know who Bruxy is, um, Bruxy, you are a pastor at the Meeting House up in Toronto, Canada, and mm-hmm. you're a brilliant writer, author of The End of Religion, Encountering the Subversive Spirituality of Jesus, and then you have a new book out called Reunion, The Good News of Jesus for Seekers, Saints, and Sinners, right? Yeah, that's it, yeah. And I wanted to write books that targeted really my non-Christian friends and become a tool that Christians could use to have conversations with non-Christians. So both of those books are kind of written for non-Christians in such a way that a, a Christian reader can eavesdrop on the conversation and join in. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really rare for a pastor to write a book like that. We're really grateful for you. And you're just, um, you, not to flatter you, but are an amazing teacher of the way of Jesus. And uh, you do that through the yeah, Bible. It was a joy. Bruxy and I don't know each other really well, at least not yet, but we do know each other. We got to meet, I think, last year. I was up in Toronto for a conference uh, that was uh, your church was hosting. And just to sit in the back room with you and get to meet you was a joy and a delight. And uh, so what we wanted to have you chat about, so we're teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, Jesus has a lot to say on nonviolence and enemy love. A lot of it is very jarring, in particular for kind of the American culture and even the American church culture. A lot of it, you know, is very kind of 180 degrees upside down from what most people are used to. And so there's just a lot to think through. And as you know, it raises all sorts of questions about not only military violence, but what about the police and what about the Old Testament and the book of Revelation and what about self-defense and pepper spray and like just so many (laughs) questions. And what we'd love to chat to you about, and you have so much great material on the subject, but we'd love to chat to you about this idea of Anabaptism. So you are an Anabaptist. I'm guessing that a lot of people listening don't even know what that is, and that's fine. Don't feel bad if you don't know what that is. But that is a tradition or a stream of the church that myself and Bridgetown and Josh and Van City have come to identify with more and more over the years. And I think it's a little bit of your journey. So maybe just give us your journey into, you're now a pastor at an Anabaptist church, um, your journey to that, and then we'd love to have you just talk about what in the world does that even mean. Oh, sure. Thanks, man. Well, yeah, so I'm like you. I'm kind of um, ingraft into the Anabaptist tradition. I'm a late-blooming Anabaptist, so <laughs> I grew up kind of properly evangelical with both some Pentecostal and some Baptist background in me, and I still had questions. I used to meet with my Jehovah's Witness friends uh, once a week for Bible study. I thought I was evangelizing them. They thought they were evangelizing me, and everybody was happy. And every so often, 
they would say to me, Rexy, how can your church represent the truth? Because you have a history, you Christians, Christianity proper, you have a history of killing each other for the sake of your earthly kingdom. When your country says go to war, you go to war, and you have one Christian nation at war against another Christian nation, brothers and sisters supposed to be representing the kingdom of Christ, and you kill each other. You actually kill each other for your earthly kingdom. How can you tell me you're prioritizing the way of Jesus? And whenever they would say this to me, something about it really, really struck a chord. Yeah, it's hard to defend against that. And that's right. And I'd say, but I really, and I'd look at the teaching of Jesus again, I'd say, yeah, this is really taking, this is really saying something I haven't paid attention to fully before, or I haven't let it sink in. But it didn't bode well that the only people who are representing this point of view, as far as I knew on the planet, were people I considered to be a cult. (laughs) (laughs) What am I going to do about this? I'm I'm not convinced by Jehovah's Witness theology, but on this one point, God's using them to challenge me. And then I did a bit more homework and realized, wait a second, there's this whole stream of Orthodox Christianity that is an underrepresented voice in the body of Christ, that I think their time has come to be heard, to be given a voice. And even if we don't convert everybody in this way of thinking, I think every Christian will be enriched by becoming more aware of this stream within the body of Christ called Anabaptism. So they, when you think of the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s, uh, the, the, the Anabaptists were the students of the Protestant Reformers, so you have, you have people like Zwingli, who is a professor in a seminary and is uh, a church leader in his own right. It was actually his students, the 20-somethings of their day, who said basically to their Protestant reforming professors, you guys have made us fall in love with the Bible for ourselves. That's great. You're translating it, and we are teaching what the Scriptures teach. And now that you tell us, read the Bible for ourselves, we're saying to you, you guys aren't going far enough. Right. You are not reforming enough because we got stuck on the Jesus bit. We're reading the Sermon on the Mount, and we're saying, hold on a second. You never taught us this part before. And so the, they were called the radicals or the radical reformers. They're like the second wave of the Protestant It's kind Reformation. of a second generation of the Protestant Reformation. That's it. That's it. So while the Protestant Reformation said, like, sola scriptura, let's get people back to the Bible, it was then the next generation said, yes, and when we read the Bible, let's see Jesus as a centerpiece of the Bible, and that includes his ethical teaching on how we live our lives embedded in the Sermon on the Mount and other places, and and so we've got to be passionate enough and strong enough and courageous enough to say he really meant this, and we're going to live this out. So that's the radical reformation kind of happens why right were they on called, the heels of the Why were they called radical? Yeah, but radical because they said one of the things— uh, this is not everything to do with Christianity, but it's certainly, they said, one of the plain teachings of Jesus is that we need to do no damage to the image of God in people. We we need to actually love people, which includes not killing them, and and that includes even our enemies. And as I read through Matthew chapter 5, you have to ask the question, if God— and for people who say, this is a shock to my spiritual system, I would say, well, let's, let's just play a hypothetical game. If God did want Christians, his followers, to be nonviolent, what more could he have said? Is there anything more he could have said to convince you? He gives you the basic principle of loving your enemy. And for the person who says, yes, but there's many ways to love, and love doesn't actually mean, but then he goes on to give you very practical examples of what that would look like and, and what it would not look like. And so it seems to me that God's really um, laid this out there as one of the plain teachings that the Anabaptists said, at at the very least, there might be all kinds of theological questions we still have to solve, but at the very least, we should be known as the peaceful people, the enemy-loving people, 
who will embrace who will embrace everyone, including people who will not embrace us back. And it, they said, you know what? It's always okay to die for a cause. It's just never okay to kill for a cause. Right. Jesus teaches that very clearly. And I love that phrase, the plain, uh, the plain reading or the plain gospel. That's a very kind of Anabaptist kind of line that you hear on a regular basis. And my interpretation of it is just, well, if you, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you read the teachings of Jesus, if you read the New Testament, the plain reading is this, that, or the other. And it's almost refreshing. We live in a world of so much nuance, and I'm a part of that and all for it, but it's, it's almost refreshing. Yeah, yeah, it's true. There's, when, when I was kind of, kind of reintroduced to this teaching, it's like a light went on. I just, it was, I had a, where have you been all my life experience? Like, come on, of course, it's right there. How did, how did I not see this? And then as you continue reading through the teaching of Jesus, you see the example of Jesus, you read the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the early church, you do some church history, and you realize this was plain to everybody, and, and then it got obscured a few hundred years into right. the Christian faith after Constantine. But for the first few generations of the Christian church, this was really clear. And once, in some sense, once our intellects are given permission to see it, because the church history has clouded us in a lot of ways. And once we give ourselves permission to say, no, it actually is right there. You can see it for yourself. All of a sudden, you see it everywhere in the teaching example of Jesus in the early church. Now, back to the 16th century, radical reformers, second generation, sitting under Luther and Zwigli and others who start to say, hey, we need to make, you know, the Sermon on the Mount kind of more of a centerpiece and the teachings of Jesus, we need to live into those more than just kind of the theological systems, which are all great. Why, this was a radical idea, and it was thought of as a dangerous idea, right? So I was reading a historian recently who I think his line was, the only thing that Protestants and Catholics could agree on in the 16th century was killing Anabaptists. And I think that was the verbatim quote. So why, why, why was, there was a persecution of Anabaptists by yeah. both Catholics and Protestants throughout Europe in the 16th century, which is bizarre to me. Why would you kill people who one of the main tenets of their stream of the church was, we don't kill people? Yeah. So they're not a threat. They don't right. have a gun. They're not coming at you. They just said, we want to go live in community, practice the Sermon on the Mount, not kill people, and therefore we're not going to you know, serve in the military or hold a, for them hold a position mm. in government a lot of the time. Why was that such a threat to 16th century mm, Europe? Yes. When you put it in context, uh, both Catholic and Protestant countries, because they had allowed this concept of the fusion of church and state, you know, if you're born in Germany, you're Lutheran, if you're born in France, you're Catholic, and your citizenry of the country and your membership in the church was one and the same, um, and because of that fusion of church and state, they anyone who would come along and say, actually, church and state are different, faith should be a matter of free choice, and if you do commit to following Jesus— then you should, you're most likely, as you are discipled in his teachings, going to live a nonviolent life. If that caught on in a country that called itself a Christian country, where people are supposed to follow the teachings of Jesus, if that understanding caught on, their army, uh, their military would diminish significantly. And this was a time where Catholics needed all their Catholics to be ready to fight the Protestants, and Protestants needed all their Protestants to be ready to kill the Catholics. And together they had to be ready to kill and defend against the Turks or Muslim invasion. And all of these were live, um, live uh, areas of battle at that time, and it felt righteous and right to populate your army with good and godly soldiers who will kill the enemy, whether it's Muslim or whether it's Catholic. And... And so Anabaptists said no, uh, and, and 
And then if that caught on, it really could become nationally disastrous. And, and, and in some sense, uh, Anabaptists would say, do you see what you're doing? You're prioritizing your earthly kingdom and calling it the kingdom of Christ. And you, it's okay. the Protestant reaction would be, yes, but if we don't fight, what happens if we lose? And what happens if the enemy yeah, takes which, over? Yeah, which is a question Baptist, we still get yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah. And the Anabaptist response would be, that's fine. Then you will die like Jesus. You will die well, because it's always okay to die for truth. It's never okay to kill for truth. And if the enemy wins physically, we're not fighting a physical battle. We're fighting a spiritual battle. And the church is we're, always... We're prosperous. all in the basement of First Baptist doing the rock fist right now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the church has always prospered, actually, in its theology and its character and its compassion when it did not clamor for power, but when it, when it prepared its people to live well and die well, live well and die well. And that was one of the ways that the church grew so quickly in the early generations of the church. after The church has never done well when we have clamored for power and we have used violence to try and extend the kingdom or defend our own kingdom. Um, and people say, well, I'm, I'm going to still follow the teachings of Jesus on how to steward my violent power well. But the problem with that is there is no teaching from Jesus on how to steward your violent power well. <laughs> he doesn't teach it. So, so the church... You know, skims through the Bible and says, well, we can find an Old Testament model. Yeah, King, King David. David or, yeah. Yes. And bit by bit, we shift our focus from Jesus because he doesn't teach the church how to use the sword well. He teaches us to lay it down. Wow. So there's a wide gap in the 16th century between kind of the state churches, which we still have, you know, that stream today. You have Catholicism in France and Italy. You have the Lutheran Church in Germany. You have the Anglican Church or Church of England in the UK. These are all state churches. Therefore, by default, they have to be okay with violence, whether that's through Mm -hmm. just war theory or some other kind of biblical theology, because they have to run a government. Um, in collusion mm-hmm. with the church. But then you have on the other side of the spectrum, you have the Anabaptists, which is kind of the origin, the origin in the 16th century, not in church history, but of the separation of church and state. So give us the Cliff mm-hmm. Notes version. Some of those Anabaptists became early founders in America. Am I right about that? Give us the America-Canada connection to Anabaptism. Yes, that's right. So Anabaptists were, uh, after the first generation of Anabaptists, all their leaders were rounded up and slaughtered. Um, Anabaptists as, as heretics, um, and all, all because they were saying we should just really follow Jesus. Yeah, and there wasn't um, any goofy they, theology. They weren't denying the resurrection or the divinity of Christ. No. By heretics, it was, we think we should live the Sermon on the Mount, basically, right? It. it was an ethical charge to say, do you really want to follow Jesus? But their, their theology was orthodox on every other point. But they were such a threat to the state that they were considered heretics. They were rounded up and um, and and really either imprisoned or slaughtered wholesale. And so Anabaptists were always on the run for those first few generations. They would have services in the woods, in caves, in barns, and and they were just always on the move and using secret codes to arrange meeting places for church. And committed though to not fighting back to nonviolence. There were a couple of exceptions of. People who were called Anabaptists who led violent revolts, but the rest of the Anabaptist community right off the bat said, no, you are not orthodox. It was, it was rooted in these weird charismatic um, unorthodox revelations of the, the spirit of King David has come upon me and he's calling me to fight. And some people I think were actually mentally unwell who were leading these revolts and the rest of the Anabaptist community denounced it outright, said, no, that's a cult. That's not us. And aside from those couple of flare-ups, 
Anabaptists as a whole said, we have to be committed to nonviolence, including loving those who are killing us, because that's how Jesus died. And the terrifying thing is, those that were killing them were quote-unquote Christians. It's so weird. It's so strange. And so when they were always on the run, and eventually they found out that, um, well, there there was land being granted over here in the Americas where they could come and not be killed. And so Anabaptists were notorious evangelists. They they wanted the church to be evangelized first and foremost in the the way of Jesus. To not saying that all other Christians aren't true Christians and need the gospel, but all other Christians they felt had become deluded by the, the power of violence and needed to be discipled in the way of Jesus. And so they were notorious evangelists and and very outspoken in calling people to follow the way of Jesus. But after years of persecution, with all of their key teachers and best thinkers being uh, targeted for slaughter, eventually whoever's left said, let's go to the Americas where we can just live in peace. By the time they got over on this side of the pond, they were tired. They were beaten down. And they said, can we just find a farm and maybe raise our kids in peace for a while? And they started to find farms and create little Anabaptist communities. And this is where we get people like the, the, the Hutterites and the Amish and the Mennonites. And if they become very ingrown upon themselves and they stop reaching out because, frankly, they are just a beleaguered people yeah. who have had the evangelistic spirit beaten out of them. And so what's happening now is this kind of revival of Anabaptism, of people even like myself who didn't grow up with an Anabaptist notion saying, you guys, do you know what kind of a jewel you're, you're, you're stewarding here? This is this unspoken, beautiful truth of the Christian body of Christ that, that just has been underutilized. And, and, and so I, I want to partner with, this, with the Anabaptist community to say, find your voice again um, and, and become the, the evangelists, the outspoken people of Jesus that you were in the first generation. So Anabaptism isn't a denomination it's not a style yeah. of church. It's not an ethnic yeah. group. It's a stream of church tradition is how I think of it, almost mm-hmm. like Protestant or Catholic or Evangelical or Eastern Orthodox or Pentecostal. Anabaptism is a stream. Give it in your language. What's your framework? What are like the key tenets when we think about it today? You, the Meeting House, um, obviously Bridgetown is, has no official denomination thing, but I would identify with, yeah, that's the stream I most identify with. Give us like the key tenets of Anabaptism from your perspective. Cool. Yeah. Jesus at the center and radiating out, radiating out from there are values like community, simplicity, and peace. The, the, the bond of community, the, the church is the people. And, and that, that was really, Anabaptists were forced to live that out during the first generations because they never had their own church cathedral or church building to call a church. So that's why when they came over to the Americas and they were finally ready to even build their own places of worship, they never called those churches they always only use the word church to refer to the people. So when they first met, built places of meeting, they called them meeting houses wow. and said, "These are this is where the church meets, in the meeting house. And so our church called the meeting house. We were just kind of pulling back into Anabaptist history to remind ourselves of the people of the church. And then, so, so community, simplicity, to say, um, you know, the Sermon on the Mount also addresses issues of materialism and trying to find our satisfaction in getting the, our desires met through worldly goods, and that rather than to say, what an interesting goal to live within our means instead of above our means, how about we intentionally live below our means 
so that we can be radically generous and give extra away and practice radical hospitality with whatever we do keep for ourselves. And so you have community, simplicity, and then peace. Uh, peace as a way we relate to the world around us, as well as an inner peace that is not caught up with the desire for more. And all of these, though, radiate out from a centrality of Jesus. So we're not just a simplicity movement or a pacifist movement or a Jesus movement. And then when, when we put Jesus first, these seem like very clear biblical um, values that radiate out from having Jesus in the center. Yeah, I think one of the things that first drew me to the idea of Anabaptism was I grew up in kind of West Coast evangelical Bible church world that my dad was a pastor, mm-hmm. amazing guy, and grew up in some really healthy churches. But in the church tradition that I grew up in, Jesus, I don't know how to say this in a nice way, but my, um, it felt to me like the felt experience was that Jesus was never really taken seriously as a teacher. Jesus was mm-hmm. the savior of the world. There was a ton of emphasis in the church tradition that I grew up in on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, specifically on the cross, mm-hmm. his death in my place. But really the vision for the ethic, uh, the kind of ethical vision and even theological vision was far more rooted in Paul and in a very specific way of reading Paul more than it was in Jesus. And it wasn't until I hit my 20s, started reading Dallas Willard and others, that I started to take Jesus seriously, not just as my Savior, but as a teacher. And I, mm. I'm firmly in the camp of both and. Like, he's a rabbi, and he's a Messiah, and he's the Savior of the world. God come among us. And I love that beautiful symmetry. Oh, yeah. But that was one of the first things that drew me to it was here's a group of people that are actually taking Jesus, like the first part of the gospel, because I think for a lot of people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John start in the the 20s, you know, start with the last week of Jesus' life. And we forget the whole bit about the kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount, how to live— interpersonal conflict, community, nonviolence, all of that is like kind of swept under the rug and we move forward to the cross. And I love the cross. But I, one of the things that I first started to really love about the Anabaptist tradition was the emphasis on Jesus as our Savior, but also as our teacher. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I love that. The Apostle Paul brings both together in places like um, uh, Romans ten nine, where he says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Jesus saves us. He becomes our Savior when we first come to him and say, you are our Lord. And Lord is not just to say Jesus is God, but it is also to say you are our leader, our master, our mentor. You are the one. We are disciples of you. We are we are apprentices of you and your way. And so Paul doesn't say invite Jesus to be your own personal savior. He says when you come to Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. And so at the meeting house, we don't just invite people to pray a prayer and say, Jesus, be my Savior. We invite people to submit to following Jesus as Lord. And when you do that, the good news is you get him as Savior as part of the package. It's there. But if you just say, just it's a free gift of grace, pray the prayer. Paul says it's a free gift of grace to people who are already Christians. He's writing in the epistle saying, remember, don't get cocky. You didn't earn this. This is a free gift. But we front end load the message. Jesus says, you got to be willing to die to yourself and your own agenda. And so um, Jesus encourages people to count the cost first. Think about, yes, it's a free gift of grace. That will cost you everything. And, and it's, it's, it's free in that you can't earn it. it, it it's too costly. But it is also this gift that you steward 
by being willing to lay down everything for the cause of Christ. Wow. Well, Brexit, you know, I love something that you said uh, really early on that we've been harping on all this time, uh, and wonderfully so, is that you came to understand the Anabaptist tradition as something that even if um, other folks in different Christian traditions, different streams and denominations do not convert to Anabaptism, you believe that there is an enrichment available there. Uh, there's a, like a, a lot of overlooked um, history and theology and, and focus on Jesus. So I'm curious, you know, when you are writing and when you're traveling or talking or having conversations, entertaining dialogue with folks who are in different uh, traditions, in, in specifically like in Western evangelicalism, um, folks that when they hear some of these core values of the Anabaptist tradition, uh, it not only surprises them, but it often runs contrary to their tradition, their upbringing, their church, their history, whether it's nonviolence, whether it's a separation of church and state, whether it's radical enemy love, and even really uh, simplicity. How, um, how, how do you invite people into some of those values, even if you're not trying to convert them to Anabaptism per se, mm-hmm. but how are you trying to celebrate and, uh, and I, I hesitate to word, use a word like correct, but how are you, mm. you know, trying to uh, get people to actually entertain some of these values when it hits so many of them so contrary? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I love what you guys are doing, even with this podcast and with your teaching, in that um, I want to I want to encourage people that being aware of what the wideness of the body of Christ teaches and what your brothers and sisters around the world, um, how they approach the teaching of Jesus and becoming aware of that and celebrating these significant streams of thought and ethics in the body of Christ, that's got to enrich your faith and it's got to breed more unity, just breathes unity in the body of Christ and we understand each other more. And when we hear someone else picking on my, my Anabaptist friend or my, my, my Protestant friend and I hear I can stick up for them and say, well, I understand why they believe that. I understand I may, we can do that on every topic, uh, whether it's women in leadership or it's charismatic gifts or it's infant versus believer baptism. We can say, here's where we stand, but I also want to speak well of those who hold a different position. And part of that is that I need to understand it and understand that the reason they got there is is because they they see it in scripture. It's not just that you know, people who allow women to be pastors have sold out to liberalism. And people who believe the charismatic gifts are, to, are for today don't care about Scripture and should read more John MacArthur. And people who uh, believe in infant baptism obviously do not practice the way of Jesus and, and don't care about what the Bible says. Um, I would say, no, we can't, we can't stereotype. The, it's a kind of bigotry that we would recognize perhaps in areas of racism or ageism or sexism in, in different ways, but we'll tolerate within denominational divides in the church. To, and I would say, no, the, one of the first steps for unity is to understand each other better. Get inside the head and the heart wow. of Christians who you may not agree with, but are your family and you should care about. And, and one of those streams in the church that many people, I think, will be enriched by understanding better is the Anabaptist tradition, whether or not they end up um, changing their theology on, the, on any point. Well, that's amazing. You know, I, I heard a teaching from you once where you— uh, mentioned what you've already said here, which is that at the core of the Anabaptist tradition is this high emphasis on Jesus, Jesus at the center. And uh, I think you said something to the effect mm-hmm. of like, all your higher theologizing is is unimpressive if you're unable to land the plane with Jesus. Um, so in, in that regard, what what do you think the broader uh, evangelical tradition has to learn 
from the Anabaptist tradition. How can churches like ours that um, come from a non-denominational or broad evangelical tradition but have uh, this sort of uh, ties or interest or enthusiasm for the Anabaptist tradition, um, how can we learn from you guys' uh, emphasis on Jesus at the center? And, and where, do you, where do you see that that's kind of gone off the rails from time yeah. to time? Yeah, almost like in the, it's the same question. What are the greatest challenges that you think your tradition has to offer the broader kind of church, in particular in the West? What are the greatest questions that your tradition um, would prompt us to ask? Yeah. Mm, no, that's good. Um, it, it seems to me that I'm, I'm going to kind of, before I answer directly, let me ramp up to that <laughs> with, with a framework. It seems to me, I sometimes help people who are new to our church, uh, especially if they come from other churches. It, Non-Christians are almost easier to disciple, I think, than people who, who have kind of grown up in the church and have become used to their own furniture, and it's all just kind of too, too familiar. And, um, and sometimes when people come to the meeting house, some other church traditions will say, you know what I really notice? You guys talk a lot about Jesus. And I'll say, well, that's fascinating because we're Christians. <laughs> Who else do you think we'd be talking a lot and, about? And they're surprised by that. <laughs> yes. And what I realize, and this is one of the ways now I've started to help people understand, is that different theological traditions can almost be symbolized through different members of the Trinity so that you have uh, a tradition within a more... Um, a reformed uh, a, a tradition that, that highlights the glory of God, that the Father represents well. God's glory, His fatherhood, His omnipotence, and His, his kind of um, leadership over the family is a very important. And this kind of um, understanding of God as Father it, is, and, and His... Um, his sovereignty is an important understanding of how that's how they pro- approach theology and everything radiates out from there. Others, of course, the Holy Spirit. It is sensing the Spirit, experiencing the Spirit, flowing with the Spirit, being filled and baptized with the Spirit that is almost like a starting point of emphasis, and everything moves out from there. And I, I think, now of course I'm speaking as an Anabaptist, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the New Testament and Jesus himself corrects us to say, I'm actually the starting point. In fact, even when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is going to remind you of my teaching. Because when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and unless you start with me, you will misunderstand the Father. And unless you start with me, you'll become obsessed with the Spirit as some kind of magical power and not know that he's primarily the wind of God blowing you in my direction towards my teaching. So that Jesus is, is uh, at the end of Luke's gospel, saying all of Scripture is really about me. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, when he gives the Great Commission, he says, you know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, that's his only motivation for the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. Not, not, you know, people are lost and dying going to hell, therefore rescue them. All good possible motivators, but the one that trumps them all is Jesus is at the center. He has all authority. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, we go and make disciples. Everything radiates out from Jesus and his lordship. And then he ends the Great Commission by saying, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I have commanded you. And now, we understand Jesus has already taught that all of Scripture it really is a pointer to Jesus. So we don't just read the red letters. We read all of the Bible, but we read it differently because Jesus says it's really all about him. So we go into all of Scripture saying, what can I learn about Jesus here? And he says true Christian discipleship is not just teaching them the Bible or teaching them to follow the Bible or to obey the Bible. It's to follow and obey Jesus 
That's why we read the Bible. So I'm always encouraging people to read the Bible, study the Bible, but so you can follow Jesus. And until you get to the follow Jesus bit, you're not really participating in the Great Commission. Wow. Well, and how, how are some of the ways that your community, for example, um, is actually stepping into some of the more um, specific uh, streams of the or, or specific expressions of the Anabaptist tradition, whether that's like how you encourage your um, community to participate or not participate in the state, whether that's, uh, in, you know, mm-hmm. nonviolence and enemy love. What are some pragmatic ways that you guys are actually trying to realize the teachings of Jesus? Yeah, good. Um, and there's a list of things we caution against and hopefully a longer list of things we encourage more of. And so a compassionate engagement with all people with whom we agree and with whom we disagree, who are Christian and who are non-Christians, kind of core to, I think, the ethic of Jesus, this love being our guide. So in the New Covenant, we move on from law to love. And that's a bit more scary because the letter of the law is just not there as kind of an exoskeleton to force us to move in a certain direction. You have the spirit, you have changed hearts, and it's inside out rather than being forced from the outside in. And so we're constantly working on character issues and listening to the Spirit, and then listening to how the Spirit speaks through the body of Christ to always ask the the question, how can I love better? I think that's the primary leading ethical question of every decision and every interaction that we have in our lives. How can I love this person better? And so that's, that's an emphasis in our teaching that I think tries to partner with what the Spirit is doing under the new covenant. And, and then along with that, there are kind of case studies. There's examples of, of things that I don't want to lead with just what could become a legalism to saying Christians don't join the army. Um, you know, Christians don't never hold a gun never have a gun except for hunting purposes or whatever. Um, I, I would instead want to start with that inner kind of character correction that really wants to pay attention to Jesus. And then from there, begin to ask those questions of, well, what does that mean for our relationship with things like violence? And, um, and would we sign up to, to kill for our earthly kingdom um, when the king of our heavenly kingdom calls us to love even our enemy and be willing to lay down our life for our enemy? Shouldn't that make us a terrible soldier? Because when I, you know, when I hold up a gun on the battlefield, there's only two kind of people that I could shoot. One is a Christian, one is a non-Christian. If I'm killing a fellow Christian who's fighting against me with another country, here we are again, two brothers in Christ. We're citizens of the same heavenly kingdom, and the kingdoms of this world have set us up to be killing each other. That's got to grieve the heart of God. That can't be the way of Jesus. So I say, okay, well, I wouldn't kill another Christian, but they're non-Christians. Those guys are definitely pagans over there. I'll kill them. Well, my first responsibility to a non-Christian is to lay down my arms and say, I want you to understand the love of Jesus and to hear the gospel of Jesus. I will die trying to deliver you to, to deliver the gospel to you, rather than pull the trigger and say, I am deciding that now is your time to cease to have opportunity to hear the gospel. And if I really believe in hell, if I believe in the judgment of God, if I believe this person, if that is their destiny, for me to pull the trigger is to is to give up on their redemption completely. I can't do that. So there's only Christians and non-Christians out there for me to kill, and I can't justify killing either. So it seems to us that Christians would make lousy soldiers and would would be either conscientious objectors or conscientious um, cooperators, as Dennis Doss was in the Hacksaw Ridge, that movie. But um, 
but those are more rather than just starting with those kind of kind of legalistic. Well, don't do this and don't do that. We want to start with character issues and then ask the questions that lead us to rethink whether we would be willing to participate in violence of any kind. Roxy, I just love it. I I think we'll let you go out of respect for your time. It's your Monday, and I'm sure you're recovering from a marathon day yesterday preaching at the meeting house. But uh, can we just say thank you? We love your heart. That was my first when I first met you. It was just your heart was just on your sleeve in the best, not in an emo, teenage <laughs> rock band kind of way, in a in a kind, authentic, down to earth, humble, beautiful way. And uh, your mind, the way your mind works, is such a gift. Your teaching and your voice to the church through North America and around the world. Like, we need more of it. So thank you again. If people want to listen to your teachings or your podcast or read your books, where, where should people go to find more about you and your work? Great. Two website addresses I can give you. One is the churches, and that's themeetinghouse.com. All one word, themeetinghouse.com. And the other is just my weird name. It's bruxy.com. Rexy.com. Wow, see, and, that's uh, both. one more argument for the single name. <laughs> there you go, man. <laughs> that sounds so cool. I, I love just, you, brothers. I just feel not as cool right now. <laughs> I need a childhood nickname that's better than Jono, you know? Jono.com. Just doesn't have the same ring. Sounds like a Jello commercial or something. <laughs> Well, Bruxy, um, tons of love to you. I can't wait to see you next time. We would love to get you out to Portland at some point to teach at Bridgetown and do some more work uh, in person rather Man, than over the phone. Man, that'd be a privilege. Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll shoot you an email in the next week or two, and we'll see if we can get something on the books. But tons of love to you, tons of respect. Keep up the great work. And grace and peace to you in the name of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Bless you both. Thank you for this privilege. Love you guys. We got it. Double rock fist. Out. <laughs> All right. Bye.